But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Acts chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Hey everybody, I'm Chris Dowd. And I'm Reagan Gilliland. And this is Off Script, a podcast where every week we take a deeper dive on last Sunday's sermon, talk about the theology behind it, and get a chance to discuss anything that ended up on the cutting room floor. This is week two of our Easter season sermon series, Faith Matters with a question mark. And, and I'll just tell you now, Whitney gave me a hard time. She's like, you gotta stop saying it that way. You gotta say, Faith Matters? <laughs> and my, so, yeah, my sermon last week I go, you know, it's like Ron Burgundy? <laughs> so sure. it, in the sermon on Sunday, I specifically said faith matters, <laughs> just like that. Yeah, so the hand motions. That's for, my, okay. that's for my bride, who I assume is going to listen to this at some point, and hopefully I will have remem- remembered to tell her that I mentioned her at the start of the podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. We're talking about sin. Let's do it. Okay. Actually, there's more to it, but. <laughs> yeah, our common problem. Sin. <laughs> our common problem. But um, I do want to talk about, in the beginning, you shared, um, the first week you, you shared this Gallup poll about how for the first time less than 50 percent of americans associate yep. themselves with a church mosque or synagogue yep. um, and you kind of touched on that again yep. and you shared about how you know all of us know the value of raising our kids and grandkids in the church but i was talking to ashley about this she's like do you think people really know the value or do you think people are still just showing up uh so i <laughs> I am giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. Okay. That if you're showing up for this uh uh sermon, like if you're if you're in the church today, yeah. you see some value in what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And it is the case that young like young parents oftentimes people in their 20s if they drift from the church, oftentimes the thing that gets them back is bringing their kids to church. Yeah. And it may be this, I mean I like the way I set it up is that um, it's like when you're driving to a favorite place and you don't really know how to get there. Like you don't, you can't describe it to someone else. You don't know where the streets or whatever. You just know how to get there. Mm-hmm. It, like there's this familiarity, there's this comfort um, in church. That may be the case that like we're, we bring our kids back to church because that's what we did growing up. And that's mm-hmm. vaguely important for some reason. I mean, surely there are people that are, that are uh, for whom that's their experience. But I do think that if you are, um, you know, going to Sunday school, if you're taking your kids to Sunday school, if you're, if you're certainly, if you're bringing your kids to worship, yeah, which isn't, you know, necessarily like you have to teach your kids to yeah. enjoy worship, right. Or to tolerate it as the case may be. Yeah. Um, then yeah, you see, you inherently see some value in it, but I, I don't think, I don't think that we clearly articulate to ourselves why we're there. Yeah. And right. I, would, I mean, there's a distinction between seeing the value in it, knowing it's important, and being able to say why it's important. Yeah. When someone says, like, well, why, what can you get from church that you can't get other places? I think that's why it's really good. This whole series of faith matters mm-hmm. is being able to articulate all these different things as we'll walk through in the next few weeks. Um, but because I do get that question from people that haven't grown up in the church, because I don't know about you, but, you know, I do find people that literally sometimes around my age, they're like, no, I never was raised in the church. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know anything about the church. Right. Um, and so we need to, t- like, we can't assume everyone has 
even a little bit. Some people literally have not stepped foot in a church ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really good to say, okay, this is why, this is the value that I see that church gives me that I can't seem to find anywhere else. And so I think it's good for us to reflect upon that. And that's such a great witness to other people. Um, you know, we're supposed to be telling people when you become a member of this church, one of your things is to go witness and tell people what's going on here um, and why you're part of it. So I think it's really good for us to, to reflect the le- the next few weeks on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, that was our premise when we were putting together this, this series together. I mean, I think there's value in just the community aspect of church, the mutual support of church. Like what happens when my spouse or my child is sick like mm-hmm. I, I like having a support network just having the human connection like the sociological reasons for coming to church are uh, are good they're important yeah but there is this underlying theology of why it's important as well yeah and um whitney used to talk about uh like in, in small towns there is this she used to call it the living room syndrome like you're it's easy to to just kind of do church every week and assume that we all know why we're here mm-hmm. and assume that we all know what we're doing and assume that this time of the church is when we're talking about this kind of thing without, without kind of clearly articulating. <laughs> it's like you're in the house in the, in the, in your own home. And, um, like you walk in the living room, everybody knows why you're there. Nobody, there's no introductions that are required. Like right. you don't have to, t- there's no context required if you're just at family gathering and walking in the living room with a bunch of friends. Yeah. Uh, and when you're, when you have that level of familiarity, that's good. But that, that the problem is we're, we're always supposed to be reaching new people. And if we're always supposed, always supposed to be reaching new people, then there's a sense in which we always should be orienting people to what it is we're doing and why we're here, why this is important. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so certainly during Easter, uh, the premise would be that people visit on Easter and they think, huh, well, this place is kind of, this is a good experience. I, I want to come back. Mm-hmm. And then we tell them why we're here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you, uh, your main scripture is, we're still in the book of Acts. So you did Acts 3, 12 through 19. Yeah. Um, and it's, it starts with Peter. He had just healed a man. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit right before that when the actual healing happened? Anything that maybe relates to common humanity, which we talked about last week, mm-hmm. or today, our common problem? Um, yeah, so... Throughout Acts, uh, Peter makes a series of speeches uh, that reflect some aspect of theology. So it starts with Pentecost, which it's strange. (laughs) So we read Acts throughout the Easter season, but every year the end of Easter is Pentecost, (laughs) Pentecost. which is the birth of the church and the start of the book of Acts. Uh So, (laughs) you know, we're supposed to read it throughout the Acts, but we revisit the beginning at the end. Yeah. Um, Just in case you forgot. (laughs) Right. go back. Right. So this is the second of of Peter's speeches in Acts. It's the first one he's made. It comes right on the heels of the Pentecost story. And um, I am super uncomfortable with the subtitle of this section in my NRSV study Bible. It says, Peter heals a crippled beggar. Okay. (laughs) That is not people first language. No, it's not. But the, the story is that there's a man who was, quote, lame, lame from birth. So he had some kind of physical deformity that kept him from being mobile from the time he was born. And he's, uh, we don't, like, we don't have the context of the amount of time, how old the guy is, but the, the insinuation is that his whole life he has spent 
begging alms mm-hmm. at one of the gates of the temple. The, what, the beautiful gate is named in the yeah. text. <clears throat> and so Peter sees him and he says, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I got something better. And he heals him in the name of Christ. And all these people are like, whoa, <laughs> what, what happened to Junior here? Who was, I mean, he's been laying here. We've been whole, walking by him more. every day. I've been ignoring him for I 10 know, years. I know, that's like, the oh. problem. Like, all right, there's our problem. <laughs> we'll just stay right there for a second. Yeah. So this speech happens in what's called Solomon's Portico. It's actually a pretty famous um, vignette in the early church. So that's the, that's the setup. And so, I mean, Peter's basically fussing at the crowd in this. And the, the scripture that we, read, that we read at the top of the podcast, um, he's pretty direct. Like, this is not, uh, this is not <laughs> invitational preaching. No. <laughs> um, and what's interesting, and I talk about this a little bit in the, the sermon, it's basically Luke's theology of the cross, which, so you killed him, God raised him. That's the, that's the long and the short of it. Mm-hmm. For Luke, the cross is the consequence of human sin. It's not satisfactions for some abstract notion of divine justice. Okay. God didn't send Jesus to die to pay off some divine debt. All those theories come later. And that really freaks people out when we start talking about that because yeah. we all we're all raised with this kind of background music about what the cross means for luke it's simple um we violently destroy things of god typically mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're selfish we're bigoted we're hateful we're greedy like that's that's sin for mm-hmm. for luke and the consequence of that is that we even kill God's son slash God incarnate. I mean, there's a lot of theology to unpack there. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, so let's go ahead and talk. If you were to ask an average church goer, mm-hmm. how do you think they would define sin? What are their thoughts around sin? Let's talk about it. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, so I I consider myself a very orthodox Christian. I was raised in the Catholic Church. Um, I'm like I'm, I'm creedal. <laughs> I, the the Christian narrative is uh, I'm sold out for. Um, mm-hmm. I'm all in. I think sin is the thing that we get the worst wrong. Okay. <laughs> all right. Let's go. It's the worst. Okay. Because we typically assume that sin is this long catalog of things that we do wrong. That's sins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a little s. In Pauline theology. The problem is the power of sin, mm-hmm. capital S sin, big S sin. <laughs> um, it's not that I lie or cheat or steal or hurt or hit somebody. I mean, those are bad things. I shouldn't do those. I should. That's not how God wants me to live. But that's not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that there is this, like, the, the, the power of sin has this hold on me. The way Paul puts it is that we're slaves to sin. Mm-hmm. And Paul has this very... Um, black and white kind of because uh, he's Paul. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this kind of dichotomy: you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. Pick your master. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's one or the other. And if you're going to be a slave to Christ, then you'll live in a different way. If you're a slave to sin, you're going to do all these things wrong. And in Luke's theology, 
all of those things that we do wrong culminate in things like killing God's messenger or God's son or God incarnate. You know, that's, that's a lot. There's a lot of incarnational theology to unpack there. But the church and a lot of, you know, different traditions handle this in different ways. Um, you know, we, gosh, we just load people with guilt about the things that they do that they shouldn't be doing. Like that's kind of the stereotype of Christianity. Yeah. And in no small part, in my opinion, and I made this point in the sermon or kind of insinuated it. I, <laughs> I, I was trying to be subtle, but if you 20 years for 20 years, we've been people, especially your generation, millennials and younger. Yeah. See Christianity as a drag because all we do is <laughs> tell people what they're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. And so much of that's wrapped around sexuality. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about LGBTQ issues. I'm talking about the whole history of the church. We've had this unhealthy view of sexuality. So um, that's how you end up with Barna, re- the Barna Research Group, doing a poll that says uh, one of the specific numbers, like 80 plus percent of millennials who don't go to church see Christians as judgmental because we've got this this overemphasis. And the word I use in the sermon is fixation on yes. the things we do wrong. Uh-huh. And for the love of God, that's not what this is about. That is not what Jesus didn't walk around saying, you know, you like he, he wasn't like a school marm fussing at people about the things they did wrong. It was about it was about an inner transformation to be more uh, godlike. I mean, to, to kind of call back to last week's Irenaeus theology of divinization. Yeah. So for the unfortunate thing is for Methodists. That's not our emphasis. <laughs> our emphasis is on sanctification, right? And I say I say it's unfortunate because, um, like, it gets complicated. So evangelical movements, like, if you look at the evangelical movements in the 18th century and 19th century, um, <laughs> there's this real positive um, emphasis on things like abolition. Right, and we're going to talk about Lucretia Mott. I know she's a Quaker, but Wesley was an abolitionist as well, mm-hmm. um, because that's about the inner transformation of ourselves, but then also a transformation of society, which flows out of our transformation of ourselves. Um, the temperance movement, the anti-alcohol movement, was the same thing. <laughs> it wasn't. Oh, it wasn't this. Um, don't drink whiskey because that's bad. It's not that. It's about it's <laughs> whiskey has the power to make you a slave to alcohol. Like you could become an alcoholic from that. That Wesley's work against uh, on behalf of alcoholics or with alcoholics wasn't because he thought drinking was bad. <laughs> it's because he saw he saw, saw the effects of people who were given over to addiction. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, Wesley drank wine and beer, and yet we conflate those two things. Like it's this. Don't drink, don't dance, don't, I mean, so, um, I think, I think that the church does itself a disservice when it's overly focused on a long list of things that, that I do wrong, but usually we don't mean that we, we usually mean what you do wrong. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I feel like probably most, um, people think, well, I don't know what it is exactly, but I know it when I see it, <laughs> you know? And, uh, for me personally, I mean, I can, uh, going back to like, you can name sins, but really like I feel more, I feel the heaviness of sin really not so much like 
exact actions. Like I, I know when I'm not being, um, working for justice or truth, like those things. I'm like, Oh, that's, I'm giving in to things that are, but, um, for a long time, you know, the definition that I was told, cause you know, I did campus ministry that was a little bit more conservative mm-hmm. and it was just like, well, anything that separates you from God, anything that, anything that. So unpack that sentence. <laughs> So can anything really separate you from God? Right. So when you that's, unpack, ter- that's terrible theology. I know. Right. But that's what I was like. Anything that separates you from God is not possible. And I was like, <laughs> at the time, I didn't understand that. I'm right. Like, and that, but because sure. then they gave me a list of like these, these are all the things that separate you from God. Um. So there's that. I think people have that. They think sin is just. Yeah, it's very much these very clear cut. And here's the other thing: is that people have different theology on what is bad and what is sin you know and they're like well that's bad well that's not that bad that's okay that's bad and it's just like dude there's a common problem that is just so (laughs) well and so i mean i grew up in a tradition that a sacrament is cataloging what you do wrong (laughs) like confession is a sacrament Mm -hmm. and so you're the expect listen i love the catholic church but this, this is going to make me so, I'm pretty passionate about this subject. So as a, as a middle school and teenage boy, you're expected to keep track of all the things you do wrong. Mm-hmm. Some of which are venal, some of which are mortal. And there's a, like, so there's, you, then you categorize them. Yeah. And then you go in and make a whole list and then you get some kind of corresponding list of prayers yeah <laughs> to the number number and severity of the sins that you're confessing uh-huh. like listen that is so un- <sighs> what does venal mean venal means like um minor mortal means the stuff that'll send you to hell i got you okay cool. venal sins are the ones that you spend some time in purgatory working off okay and listen i and that's contributed to us ranking sins. So you're like, well, if I'm not in the top 10, then I think I'm okay. You know? Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but what are the top, you well, know? Well, listen, if we're going to go top 10. <laughs> right. So, okay. <sighs> I get grumpy about this. Look, because the ten, com- the 10 Commandments, there's all kind of stuff in there that's really about the transformation of my own personality. Correct. But what, all, what always ends up on the mortal sins? What's usually something about sex? Mm-hmm. It's usually something about um, like violating a holy day of obligation. Like, my point is <laughs> that that is like kind of an inheritance of a very legalistic way mm-hmm. of looking at our relationship with God. And I am not saying <laughs> that repentance is not important. And no, I'm not, not saying that we shouldn't act right and change our behavior if we don't, right? If you, like... Um, it's like, that's important. That's an important part of the Christian walk. But, but the, the, the list of things we do wrong is not the problem of sin. It's not <laughs> the problem of sin is, and we'll probably should just tie into Lucretia Mott here. So she, the, the theologian we, we highlighted courtesy of Stephanie Reed Meyer, mm-hmm. um, is, was a, a 19th century Quaker preacher who built on the Quaker concept of this inner light within us, which I love. I do too. Like there are some traditions I could be part of if I wasn't a Methodist. 
I could be a Franciscan for sure. I love St. Francis, and I think that whole strain of Catholic theology is just profoundly life-giving. I could be Orthodox because I love all the high church stuff. I could be a Quaker. Okay. Now, well, anyway, it's a whole separate <laughs> podcast. So okay. things I could be if I wasn't a Methodist. Maybe that's an idea, Ashley, for a... Um, <laughs> But this whole concept of this inner divinity, this inner light within us that needs to be um, nurtured and highlighted and brought out through these various spiritual practices, which consists of kind of quietly listening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm, that's the opposite of the Orthodox thing. But <laughs> uh, like that sin in that construct is anything that diminishes the inner light. That is really powerful. It is. And so for her, and she was a an abolitionist, a peace activist, and I mean one of the one of the most important voices for women's rights in the nineteenth century. What a strange thing that as a middle class white guy I've never really heard a lot about her. Mm -hmm. How how's that happen? Well, it's not surprising. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, she was a mentor to Susan B. Anthony. She got, there's a long list of awesome stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor. Yes. Not because I cut it, because but because Whitney's like, oh my God, you're bogging me down with a bunch of details here. <laughs> so we can get to that. Okay. But uh, for her, in that context, um, things that diminished the inner light were things that oppressed other people, <laughs> right? So mm. it was about, for her, about the gospel was about truth it's going to sound supermanish truth justice not the american way truth justice and love yeah that that was the core of christ's teaching and that anything any ways in that we acted that were counter to that that was the problem that was sin for okay. her and i'm not sure i mean she wasn't a systematic theologian so I, but this is my interpretation of lucretia mott okay and what's interesting about that is she was not a big fan of the church and she wasn't a big fan of doctrines of the church that kept people down mm. because she lived in an era when everyone was going to church and the church was relegating women to second class status and making defenses of slavery. Yeah. <laughs> so she's like, I'm not about that. <laughs> that yeah. She's like, that's crap. That's, yeah. that's, you can, you can do all of the fancy prayers you want to do. And you can go to all the church services you want to go to. And if you are still saying that I, as a woman, don't have the right to vote and that a, a black person newly freed or pre-war in slavery mm -hmm. is like deserving of their condition or mm -hmm. should be the best Christian they can be in their condition, that is garbage. Mm -hmm. Trash, usually. Trash there you go. theology. Trash theology. And that, that's really, really powerful. It is. And I think that's super consistent with the, the whole Methodist concept of sanctification mm -hmm. that we're going on to perfection and we, you know, we get there in fits and starts a lot, mm -hmm. but ultimately the, the goal of the Christian life is perfect love of God and our fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. And if we have kind of to interpret that through a Quaker lens, if we have um, fully embraced this inner light within us, if we've done the things that bring that out, then, um, then we have dealt effectively with our common problem. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's not so much like you stop doing certain things. It really is this really inner transformation, that sanctification that really, I don't know. Yes. Changes everything. Yes. Okay. Not to go, I'm going to go back just a little bit. So verse 17 in your Acts passage yeah. it talks about ignorance. Can you talk about that? Because <laughs> I mean, I do see that. I mean, I, I feel like people have been kind of, yeah. 
with so much going on in the world, people are like, well, how do you not know that? And like, I don't know. Can you talk about, hmm. is there grace in that? Is there? So this comes right after the bit where he's like, y'all killed him. God raised him. Let me just read 16 and 17. Okay. And by faith in his name, his being Jesus, obviously, his name itself has made this man strong. So he's explaining how this man was healed. So it's in Christ's name, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So this guy who you killed is the healer of this man who you knew. And now, friends, I know you acted in ignorance, as, as did also your rulers. Specifically talking about the Jewish religious authorities. He's not, talking, he's not letting Caesar off the hook there. Yeah. So, um, and if you don't know, now you know. I got a Hamilton there. <laughs> <laughs> Quote Thomas Jefferson. In yeah. The beginning of the second act of Hamilton. Um, so his point is, uh, okay, you killed him. You killed the author of life. But you didn't know any better. And so now that you know better, mm-hmm. live a different way. Yeah. So ignorance in this case is just lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a connection here to the Romans passage that we, that I brought in. <clears throat> because Romans has this very famous, the the verse that I, so we read from Romans 3, 21 to 23. And 20, verse 23 has a very famous uh, passage that, in my opinion, is misused sometimes by our evangelical friends. Mm-hmm. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, you can use that as kind of a shaming thing. Oh, for sure. Uh, that's not what he means. <laughs> what he means is you Gentile Christians. So the context there is you Gentile. So Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians were having a conflict in Rome. They they both kind of looked down on one another. There's a lot of historical background there that we don't have time for right now. But Paul's point is, you're all the same. So get off your high horse. Yes. He's not saying you're all bad. He's saying you're all, you share this problem. All, mm-hmm. all of us are, are like, and I love that tie-in. So we have, all have a common humanity. We all have this common problem. So therefore, <laughs> I mean, you could almost also go, uh, you could almost go with Jesus there. Therefore, do not judge one another because <laughs> mm-hmm. all have sinned and fall short right. of the glory of God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so um, it's like... It, I think that you may have put this in our pre-show conversation or whatever, but that that's like a, that's a manifestation of grace. Like the acknowledgement that we don't all like there's, we live in ignorance a lot of times mm-hmm. about a lot of things. I lived in ignorance about the amazing theology of Lucretia Mott until Stephanie introduced me to her. Um, and the, the people who have seen this man healed at Solomon's portico lived in ignorance of the power of Jesus name. And Peter's like, He's not like you, so and so's. You're all going to hell now. <laughs> He's like, well, you didn't know, but now you do, and so yeah. let's live a different way. Yeah. And it's the same thing Paul's saying: like, yeah, stop judging one another. Yeah. We're all we're all equally broken. <laughs> we're all equally imperfect. Yeah. So how about we all just try to change together? Yes. Yeah, we're all in this boat together. You can point things out in me. You got to point some things about yourself. <laughs> um. I just think, gosh, if we could start acting like that toward one another, how much better conversations and transform, how much easier transformation would be. And it wouldn't be, everyone would be transforming, not just, well, let's group this group, let's group this people together. They really need help. We all, we all, we've all got the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 
this this uh, reputation we have among millennials, the, the Barna research, back yeah. to the Barna research, that we're judgmental is not it's not undeserved. Mm. <laughs> I was like, yep, yep, yep. I totally agree. No, I don't. I mean, the, what I said in the sermon was they haven't met the right congregation. Yes. Because not every congregation is like that. Correct. Not every expression of Christianity is equally like that. I mean, we're all kind of like that, like this, to a, less, a greater or lesser extent. Yeah. But it kind of is our natural way of showing up in the world. Not every, uh, not every congregation and not every tradition is like that. Wesley was very clear. He told his Methodist preachers, I do not want you to drive with fear. I want you to draw with love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lead with grace. <laughs> Don't chase this. Don't chase people um, into the hands of an angry God. To quote Jonathan, a very famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Don't do that. Make sure everyone knows how much God loves them, mm-hmm. and then we can talk about transformation. Yeah, yeah. The problem I think the problem is is that the um, leaders or church that have had the loudest voices or the biggest budget have been the loud voice. And so that's what people hear, and like, oh, that must be how everyone believes. Right. And so we've just made a lot of assumptions. We've made a lot of preconceived, you know. And so that's that's what I'm like. That's why we need to be a good witness and say, no, our church is different. Come and see, like, come and see. And um, because we're competing with a lot of different voices and a lot of different views, and I think we need to show, no, there's a there's a different side. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway. There's a great quote by Lucretia Mott. I, I want to make sure we mention it. I, it's in the sermon. Okay. <clears throat> Actually, I ended the sermon with it. The likeness we bear to Jesus is more essential than our notions of him. Mm-hmm. That's a mic drop right there. It is. By Lucretia Mott. Yeah. <laughs> Should we just wrap up the podcast? <laughs> no, no. I, went, I got like all kinds of fun trivia we got to talk about. I know. Okay. So tell me about some trivia then. So she was raised, uh, her mother... I, so her mother was a cousin of Benjamin Franklin. Okay. So this was not an outsider family. No. Um, and she, when she was 13, she was sent to a um, a Quaker school. The soci- Quakers are called the Society of Friends. The common moniker is Quakers, but technically speaking, they're Society of Friends. So she went uh, when she was 13 to be educated at that particular school where she, where she ended up becoming a teacher. And she married a guy who uh, was also a teacher at that school. The family moved to Philadelphia, and that's where she really did most of her work. But she started the first women's rights conference at Seneca Falls, New York. Oh, wow. Uh, She was a co-founder of that. Um, And two very powerful women whose names most would, well, everyone knows from Susan B. Anthony. Sure. Most of the, most people know her only because she was she had a coin, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how I knew her. <laughs> um, and then Elizabeth Cady Stanton. They both viewed her as a mentor. And so she co-founded this Seneca Falls Conference with Stanton, and she co-authored this pretty incredible document, uh, the Declaration of Intentions for Women's Rights that was modeled on the Declaration of Independence. And it's mm. this, it was 1848, I think was the year so this is pre this is pre-war so this is as she's as she's uh ruffling feathers um as an abolitionist in philadelphia she was also ruffling feathers having the temerity to say that women should be equal to men mm-hmm. um how old do you think she's around this or do you know so yeah she was born in 1897 so 
or sorry, 1797. Yeah. So um, she would have been in her late 40s at that point. Okay. Uh, she co-founded in 1864 Swarthmore College. Okay. Which is, uh, I mean, down here, we don't know about that yeah. necessarily, but it's a, uh, I, I think it's one of the premier liberal arts colleges in the country. It's outside Philadelphia. Um, and then she was a pretty strong pacifist as well. So I had this whole section of the sermon where like, I had two paragraphs talking mm-hmm. about her history and, you know, the connection to Ben Franklin, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, the fact that she was a, really a pioneer in women's rights and, I have a great editor who listens to every sermon before it gets preached, and she's like, you are, this is interesting, but you're just showing off your trivia knowledge right now. Just tell them they have to listen to the podcast if they want to hear that. So literally, is what I did. That's what you did. That's literally what I did, yeah. I, I feel like I hear about people like that, and I'm like, I have done nothing in my life. <laughs> right? Like, you've accomplished so much, and I have all the tools in the world, and yeah, that's, I mean, it's a There were fewer story. people back then. All right, I'll tell myself that. Yeah. That made me feel sad. A lot fewer people yeah. back then. <laughs> That's the only reason. That's the only reason. Sure. So. <laughs> uh, like well I'm then... listening to a biography of U.S. Grant, who, uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah. Who was a devout Methodist. I didn't know this. Oh, I didn't know that either. And uh, he was, he left, he, uh, his second term, let me get this right. He was elected president the first time when he was 46. Okay. And he served two terms. Guided the whole country through Reconstruction. Uh like had this a very underrated president, but but left office when he was, what would that have been? Fifty four. Yeah, not that much older than I am now. Yes. And they're describing him like this old man. You know, like he's, <laughs> I don't know, it's a different era. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. And I am gonna chalk it up to just way less people back then. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, is there anything else that Mott talked about that you really wanted to highlight? Things in your sermon. She had another great quote. It's we must take truth for authority and not authority for truth. All right, so unpack that for us. I love it because um, in her context, the church was the authority, mm-hmm. but the church was defending slavery and the subjugation, like the relegation of women to second-class citizens. Mm-hmm. She's like, that's not true. Just because you have authority doesn't mean you're, I mean, Jesus could have said the same thing to Pilate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just love that. Yeah. And I love that she's just very, she had, she was a, She's a fascinating character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, is there anything uh, in today's terms that you can relate that to? <laughs> <laughs> well, you tell me. Uh, I mean, I guess, of course, I go straight to like political parties, mm. and yeah, and I would say some churches, and but I think I immediately probably go to political parties. Yeah, I would just I, to me, it's just a reminder that. Just because someone in power says it's so, doesn't make it so. Mm-hmm. So you can correlate that to all kinds of justice movements, like closer to us in time, and re- but related to Lucretia Mott, we could look at the Civil Rights Movement, like the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, people who wanted to go slower than MLK was wanting them to go. They had all the authority in the world, but what they were saying wasn't true mm-hmm. um, most of the Christian world does not ordain women that's they have authority that doesn't make it true mm-hmm. and then you know I mean obviously the the contemporary issue that we continue to wrestle with is LGBTQ inclusion 
<clears throat> all the authorities of, well, in Methodist circles, mm-hmm. um, and consistently taking the stance that uh, inclusion is okay to a certain point, but there are two lines we won't cross. Mm-hmm. Some would argue that's not true. That's not truth. That's yeah. authority. Okay. No, I thought that was a really powerful quote. <laughs> so everyone think about that <laughs> in your own lives. Okay. Um, I, I know you talked about the Romans passage, but you added that later. So is there anything more you want to say why you felt really important, compelled to put that in there? <clears throat> yeah. So this is an example of, I mean, this is kind of behind the scenes sermon crafting. I mean, some, I wanted to stay in Acts throughout this um, series because just to keep the same theme, the premise being that the early church was trying to work out new theological ideas after the resurrection. We're trying to make sense of theology in this kind of watershed moment in the life of the church mm-hmm. when, you know, with the decreasing influence of the church and all that. And, eat, and theologians throughout the centuries have wrestled with theological problems in their own context. But... To me, this, even though Peter talks about sin, and there is the kind of segue to theology of the cross, which I thought was helpful, um, it there was a broader issue with, with sin that I wanted to deal with than like the 19th verse, repent therefore and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. I mean, that's fine. That's okay. But that's not really the core of what I wanted to talk about. So I felt like we needed to add a voice. And Paul, uh, I mean... Paul predated Acts, right? So the letter to the Romans was written probably, I don't know, 20 to 30 years before this story, even though this story records something that happened earlier. Right. So, you know, they're, you can kind of consider them to be contemporaneous-ish. Okay. So that's why. Okay. Is there anything you want to address of like how we, you know, how do we change? How do we become people that work for justice, truth, and love? What does that look like? If we're going to address this, how do we start to address our common problem? Yeah, I think we have to be open to the transformation that God wants to work in our lives. And that's, you know, I kind of got there at the end of the sermon. So that part of, so for me, all these threads come together. So you got to be, you got to be a member of a church if you're going to grow in your faith. That's my own personal bias on this, because I think that, um, that it's the church where we hear the word in communal worship. It's the church where we find our small groups to grow in our faith, like in Bible studies and topical studies, Sunday school mm-hmm. groups, life groups, whatever. Uh, it's the church where we we hear the the gospel in the context of justice seeking proclaimed. Uh, it's where we have the most opportunities to participate in acts of mercy through the body of Christ. And so that that kind of transformative work, both for ourselves and um, our community and broader context, all of that happens for me in the context of the church. So the more active we are in our local congregation, the more the more opportunities we're giving the Holy Spirit to work on us. Okay, that's the connection for me. Okay. Um, do you want to say anything about? Uh, common problems that you've seen in recent news and how we need to address anything or talk about anything? Uh, well, so the Chauvin trial has concluded. The verdict's been handed down. Um, 
that's the word. Like, you know, we, George Floyd's murder, I think we can call it that now. Mm-hmm. Plenty of us were calling it that from the beginning, right. but yes. now our court agrees. Yes. Um, started this national reckoning on the issue of race. And specifically the issue of racism. And, um, you know, that is a subject that is emotionally fraught. But, for, in my opinion, for Christians has to be seen through the lens of our theology. And um, the problem is we can place our theology in a secondary status to our ideology. <laughs> right? So we can approach the issue of racism, policing, systemic issues. Um, we can start with our theology and then let our politics and ideology and uh, be informed by our theology, mm-hmm. or we can start with our political biases and force our theological perspective into that. Yeah. And obviously I think that's extremely unhealthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the, um, you know, the advantage of being in a church like ours, a big tent church, uh, with people that are, that run for the gamut from very liberal to very conservative and everything in between, um, is that we can, we can model, um, a community where theology comes first and our specific political positions um, are determined or shaped by the context of our theology. So the column last week I did, um, the title was broken and it was about how the the system's just broken. Mm -hmm. And um, my, my point is that there's, there are lots of things to mourn. There are lots of things that are that are broken across the board. You can be, you know, you can be, you can begin with a very sympathetic um, a position that's very sympathetic to law enforcement, or you can begin with a position that's very sympathetic to kind of oppressed uh, th- those on the margins or minorities. Um, but wherever your starting point is, I think it's important to acknowledge that there's heartbreak across the system, and yes. that uh, there are things that are broken across the board. Correct. And if we, if our starting point is our common humanity and the assumption that none of us have it all figured out, that, that, um, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then we can kind of all get on the same theological side Yeah. before we begin parsing out our specific opinions about how policing in this country needs to be reformed. Mm-hmm. So, um, those are always lively columns. <laughs> yeah those are the ones i those are the ones i build spreadsheets for to track feedback just so i don't let the loudest voices dominate my uh memory yeah but um you know it'd be interesting to see where we go from here yeah Um, and it's good to stay off twitter (laughs) when those verdicts of when those kind of things happen yeah because one perspective is knee-jerk and predictable the other perspective is knee-jerk and predictable instead of just kind of sitting with like you know a guilty verdict is never a guilty verdict's never really a cause for celebration it's a, it's a cause for relief maybe a cause for um, gratitude that mm-hmm. uh, justice was served and that kind of thing but yeah um, it's hard to celebrate in the downfall of a person you know and that's I yeah, think that's what I mean, a lot of people wanted to do and of course, I have thoughts and opinions, but I'm like, again, if I go back to this common humanity, right, 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 <laughs> and how it, that it helps me 
be mad of all the systems that have conditioned and contributed to all the problems. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I would say like I, <laughs> I think when, um, when a a preacher says something like, "Everyone is welcome," which is the kind of week one message. Mm -hmm. Um, it's easy, even for the preacher, to have in mind. <laughs> like, yeah, all y'all, you got to welcome all these people over here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I mean by that is everyone is welcome. So Derek Children is also a child of God. Correct. Um, and man, the, the verdict was a just one. I don't think I just have a hard time believing anybody thinks otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, I know some people don't necessarily, but I think those are kind of marginal voices. <clears throat> Um, but even, even, even he is in, is a, a welcome in a relationship with God. Like even he has, like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I would like to think that I would never do something that like he did, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that I'm morally superior to him. Yeah. <laughs> right. That no, means that's I, good. Didn't, I didn't make that particular mistake or commit that particular crime at that particular moment. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, you know, I, on the police thing, I, I I really do hope that this is a moment where we, where we just look at the system of policing in this country, mm -hmm. honestly, <laughs> both its historical context, you know how it's evolved, um, and you know for all of us uh, who are of my race and socioeconomic status, um, it's really good to be to read the history from a different perspective. Yeah, because uh, I've never felt like. I've I've been pulled over plenty. <laughs> I've never felt unsafe. Mm -hmm. Like I've always felt like they were there to protect me. And if I screwed up by speeding in a school zone or whatever, that's on me. Yeah. Not everybody feels like that. And so, um, you know how how do we cr how do we reform a system that if you just look at the data is clearly broken? Um, uh, that's an easier conversation to have for people of faith when we come at it from a theological perspective. Yeah. You know, we could probably, we should probably do a podcast on that kind of, on, on the whole issue. I, and I'm sure we will on the issue of race, the problem of race. Yes. The, the problem of systemic racism. <clears throat> and, um, and where do you, where do you go from here as a faithful person who wants to, to tie it back to the sermon, fully nurture this inner light? like to acknowledge mm -hmm. the divinity within and to allow ourselves to be transformed, which will then allow society to be transformed. Um, with our particular starting point, how do we do that? And so, well, you know, I'm sure we'll be talking about that more yeah. in the coming months and years. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that last, that last part. Yeah. Thanks for good. asking. Right, that's a good question. Um, okay. I think that's all we have. That is a wrap. So next week we are talking about the cross and, uh, our, I'm laughing because it's a segue. Um, our theologian for next week is James Cone, who is a um, a theologian of uh, who's done most of his work in Black liberation theology. Not necessarily my starting place or wheelhouse, but he wrote a book called um, "The Cross and the Lynching Tree," which is really, really powerful. And um, some of those theology books can get a little pedantic, and some of them can get a little. Uh, 
oh, depending on how on the voice in which they're written, like like the the, the author's intent. Like mm-hmm. sometimes they're intended to be provocative. Sometimes they're intended to be. I mean, I'm going to use the word inflammatory. I'm sure no author really means it that way. My experience of that book is not that. My my experience of that book is that it was uh, just kind of a searing reflection on reality, and it was. It's, so I'm I'm looking forward to it. Okay. So thanks everybody for being with us. God bless you all, and uh, we will see you next. Or I guess we will see you. What's a word? Actually, I need to come up with a better word. We're gonna see them. They're gonna hear us. It's gonna be next week. We'll be with you in spirit again, <laughs> over the airwaves and the internet. <laughs> next week. Thanks y'all. God bless. Thanks for joining us for this episode off script. It was hosted by Reverend Chris Dowd and Reverend Reagan Gilland produced by Ashley Danner as a part of the Christ United podcast ministries. You can visit cumc.com backslash podcasts in order to see all of the series we have available, like subscribe and follow us so that you don't miss a single episode. Thank you for supporting us. Have a great week.